0: worship. And as we are turning our attention there, preschoolers may be dismissed through the back door for Children's Church, if you want to make your way there. Again, this is a short passage this morning, starting a new series, as I mentioned before worship. And uh, let me say just a quick word or two about why we're going to be studying this book this winter and spring. First off, uh, one thing that we like to do as a church, and if you're visiting or if this is your first time, this is worth saying, and I I mentioned this in the Foundations class, that every once in a while, in fact, I did this last week, I'll I'll, uh, claim what you might call a preacher's prerogative to just preach on something that's on my heart or, or think that would be good for our church body. But normally what I'm doing is I preach through books of the Bible, and one good thing about that is it both protects me and it protects you. Uh, it protects me from hobby horses and it protects you from my hobby horses. Meaning that it, it makes us get to things that if I just sort of woke up each Monday morning and said, well, what are we going to do this Sunday? Hopefully I'd start on Monday. Uh, that, you know it, That I don't just always default to things that I'm interested in or that I want to talk about or the bee in my bonnet. But it takes us through parts of God's Word that we just might never naturally land in. So that's one reason that we're going through a book. This is the norm for us. But a few other reasons about why 1 Peter in particular. One is we were in the Old Testament in the fall looking at the Ten Commandments, and I want our diet of God's Word. You know, God's Word compares itself to food. I want the diet to be balanced, and we need to hear from the New as well. Another thing is that in the New Testament... A lot of times we're very Paul-heavy. We're very Pauline. And that's great because Paul's letters in the New Testament are the very Word of God. But we don't want to act as if James never wrote anything or John never wrote anything or Peter never wrote anything. So it's good to be, as it were, out of Paul. They're not in conflict. Big time they're in agreement. But to hear what he has to say. But there's this one other thing... And I mentioned this before worship, and that is that if if you if you take your English Bible and you circle the word suffer and the verb suffer or the noun suffering in first Peter, the further you read, you just start circling more and more and more and more and and it's evident that he is writing a group of people that are going not through you know. They're not going through the metaphor of persecution. You know, it's not like they're on their street and the, uh, the non-Christians that host the block party on their street didn't invite them because they think they're Bible thumpers. They invited all the other neighbors, but not them because they're too... That's not their persecution. You know, it's the taking of their things, uh, the attacking of their persons maybe the murder of their friends, the hindering of their worship. It, it's it, maybe martyrdom. It's the real deal. And now, that is typically not what persecution looks like in our midst. Some of you have experienced persecution, or you're going to. But this thing of suffering, it's just a reality of a fallen world. And no one was more honest about that than Jesus. Again, you know... The biblical view of reality is not, well, pretend that it's this way. Jesus was always the voice of realism. If they hate me, they will hate you. And the reality is about in a fallen world, there is pain. There is loss. There is decay. There is death. There is suffering. And with an economic downturn, that can be. that's not the only form of suffering, but it can just be a real opportunity to feel that this world is not right. This world is not my home. And so I thought the timing was, was appropriate for 1 Peter. And let me say this, and then I'm going to read the short passage. Um, it's interesting how Peter begins this letter. The first few words, very traditional. You name yourself as the writer. You name your recipients. And then he becomes all theological. Now he knows he's writing people who are suffering. That's evident. Why does he go all theological when he's writing to people that are hurting and, you know, they, they, they need real answers. They need real comfort. And and here's the amazing thing, and this is absolutely relevant. Just as Robert prayed, there are as many different problems and forms of suffering as there are chairs in this room. That was, a, that was an excellent way to express it. Theology itself won't comfort you in suffering, but it's only when the realities in this theology, it's, it's only when the realities of this doctrine, when they actually grasp you, not so much that you are intellectually grasping the doctrine, but when the doctrine grasps you in your heart, that's when suffering becomes proportionate. It's not that it's not suffering, but that is when suffering becomes proportionate. And Peter understood this from experience. 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. Let's pray. Open our ears, Lord God, that we might hear You rightly. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from Your Word. After we have heard from You, open our lips, that our mouth might pour forth Your praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I I attended a service that I had... I had never attended a service like this before. It was at Christ Church, which is uh, just a historic presence in in downtown Greenville. And it was a Maundy Thursday service. Now, that's the Thursday before, uh, the day before Good Friday and the Thursday before Easter. And uh, two things that I had never seen before. One was just the, the practice of foot washing in the worship service. And that takes its cues from... Jesus doing it that night, the night before His crucifixion. That's in John 13. Washes the disciples' feet. That was done. It was done to me in that service, and I'd never experienced that before. But there was another thing that was done that I had never seen. I didn't grow up in in the Episcopal Church, so there are just some things in that tradition I'd never seen. And one of them was that that service is when something is done called the stripping of the altar. And it's it's this very abnormal thing that really only happens for about two and a half days in the church year. That when you near the end of the service, as you know, in the the mind of the church, as you're moving toward the imminent arrest and then killing of Jesus, that the altar up front is completely stripped. And for about two and a half days, this is the only time the altar looks this way. So that kind of vestment... ...that is over the altar, is taken away, so it's just bare wood, all the candles are removed, and there's a a large, uh, at least at that church, a large golden cross on the altar, and it's wrapped in black. And those, you know, the, the clergy and the assistants who take that, then they walk down the aisle, and it's just out of the sanctuary... And what was interesting was I happened to be sitting behind a lady, and she was watching this. And as the um, as the clergy and those assisting as they receded by, she began to cry, like I mean, like it was a funeral. And what struck me was that that probably is more appropriate than we typically do when we talk about the the sufferings and the death of the person that we claim as the church is our favorite person. Is the person that we love more than anyone or hopefully anything in the world that he was cruelly treated and cruelly roughed up and goes to an awful death that he doesn't deserve. And he does it because he loves people, because he loves his own And and if I can put it this way, and I don't know that woman. I don't know what all brought the tears out of her. But but to me, it was a picture of not so much someone grasping certain biblical realities, but it was as if the biblical realities were grasping her at a felt level. that 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 it wasn't just data, but that this is real. And if this is real, think about the implications of that. It is worth crying about from time to time. To state it again, Peter understands suffering. And he's writing a group of people who are going through real, physical, felt suffering and trials and persecution. But as soon as he names himself and as soon as he names them, he becomes very theological. What is he after? And why is he doing that? Is that inappropriate? And here's what I would suggest. I wouldn't just suggest, I would state it, is that it's coming out of his heart because these are not just realities that he wants us or them to intellectually grasp. But these are things that had grabbed Peter. They had grabbed him and he understood at a felt level, if you're going to suffer, you're going to have to have this. You've got to have this in your front pocket. So here's what I want to look at. Uh, It's it's tempting to launch into talking about Peter. Whenever I start a new series, I don't do a lot of intro because I kind of feel like most everyone forgets it by the time you need the intro stuff. So I try to farm that in as we go. This is written by Peter, in case you didn't grasp that. Um, Central figure in the Gospels. Not just one of the twelve apostles. He's one of Jesus' kind of uh, three right-hand men, Peter, James, and John. He got to be with Jesus and hear and see some things that the other nine didn't get to. But what I want to look at, the, at is this is the God that Peter is serving, the God that he's commending to these sufferers, and then to look at the actual recipients of the letter who are suffering. So God and the recipients. All right first off, what does he say about God? Letter starts off. This is traditional letter writing, first century, his cultural setting. <clears throat> name yourself, name the recipients. And then what does he say? Look about uh, halfway through that second line. It says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, that is an interesting little bundle of phrases because there is just loads of doctrine there. There's loads of theological statements. Major Christian truths would use that passage to demonstrate that they're true. Like, for instance, the Trinity. Do you note that all three persons of the Trinity were there? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This would be a, what we call a proof text, you know, a verb that helps prove the doctrine that there's one God but three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Very important verse for that. Uh, the doctrine of God's foreknowledge. And in the Scriptures, God's foreknowledge is not Him looking into the future to see what happens. God never learns anything. He never finds out anything. His knowledge and His wisdom is utter and infinite and always has been. So what does it mean to foreknow? And knowing, biblically speaking, is intimacy. If I may put it this way, this is sort of the King James, you know, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. For God to foreknow is to love people before He even creates the world. To love individuals and to love a people as a whole before the foundation of the world. This is is one of the proof texts for those doctrines. But why is Peter bringing these up? When he's thinking about these people he's writing the letter to, is he thinking to himself, you know, one of these days people are going to take this letter and they're going to break it into little pieces and assign numbers to it. And the numbers they will call verses. And the bundles of verses they shall call chapters. And there shall be people who will be called theologians. Theologians. And they will be scholars of what the Scriptures say. And theologians will need verses to demonstrate their doctrines. And so, yea, verily, I will provide them with verses. <laughs> Lo, for these doctrines. It, of course not. I mean, they are proof texts for those doctrines. I don't want to play that down. But why is he putting them in the letter? Is it just to say, and here's a little you know, doctrine to mix it up while I'm at it, you know, just talking to you. Is that it? Or is it because... You know, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think we could draw out of that, out of the overflow of the heart, the hand writes. That these were things that had grabbed Peter. He does want us, he does want them, to intellectually grasp them. But they had grabbed him. The doctrine of the foreknowledge of God was that to him just theological data that he learned and now he wants them to learn so they can win debates about it? Or was it something else? This is Peter. It was probably common knowledge in the early church that this was the apostle who swore when it was predicted that he would never deny Jesus. And he certainly wouldn't do it three times. And he did. And Jesus restored him. He is a pillar in the church. But he did do that. When you think about... I mean, when you have really blown it, when you've blown it with your friend, when you've blown it in front of your family, when you've blown it at the workplace, what it's like the next time you see them. Like you come back to work the next day after you just sort of let loose with your anger, or your frustration, or whatever. Just came unhinged, and then you have to go back the next day. Or you have to face your children again. Or you see your friend again. You know, you just feel shame and embarrassment. And certainly, Peter could have felt that, but you, you find him writing this letter. He just states, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, he, and, and he's actually going to tell them things to do. He is going to exercise a right and good authority in this letter. How can he hold his head high? Can he hold his head high because he knows so much theology? No. Here's why he can hold his head high. If you read the end of the Gospel of Mark, there's a little detail there about Peter that the other three Gospels don't tell you. It says that when Jesus rose from the dead, Easter morning... And the first witnesses of the resurrection were not the apostles. The first reporters were women. The first witnesses were women. And when the women get there, they see angels. And one of the angels says to the women, Go tell the disciples and Peter to meet the Lord in Galilee. And I want you to stop and think about what that means. How did Peter get the message, even though you denied him? Even though a servant girl sent you packing? Even though you lied when he invested three years of his life in you? Why does he still want to be with you? Well, Why does he want to meet you? You can know that because the women told you that. How did the women know that? The women know that because the angels told them that. Who sends angels? God. And when Peter thought about the foreknowledge of God, that God loved people, God loved rebels, God loved the stubborn and the stiff-necked and the wicked, before he made molecule number one, that was not a theory to him. He felt that that day, personally. That the foreknowledge of an infinite God keeps going. And that when I'm not faithful... He is. Why would he be giving that to sufferers? We see, this is the thing. We need theology, but actually, at some level, we need suffering too. And this is a good opportunity to say this. As a church, Downtown Presbyterian Church is a theological church. I was talking overtly about this in the foundations class yesterday that we have theological identity, we have theological roots. It doesn't mean we know everything. It doesn't mean we don't have worlds to learn. But we have come to conclusions and planted our flag about certain things. And some of you actually really enjoy that stuff. You like to read about it. You like to talk about it. And that is great. But there's this litmus test that will actually... It actually will show us and show the people in our lives... Is this just something that you have intellectually grasped and you like, you know, kind of bantering about it? Or is it something that's grasped you? And the litmus test is suffering. In our assurance of pardon... Let me back up. In our confession of sin, it talked about that God is a God of wrath. And then in the assurance of pardon, it talked about that Jesus takes away the wrath of God. And then we sang, In Christ Alone, which talks about, you know, in Him the wrath of God was satisfied. Jason set that up beautifully. But what is that to you and to me? Because there's a way to know that where it's just cold information. And actually, when we do this, we're the people that give doctrine a bad name because it's data that has not touched the whole of our lives. And here's what that might look like, is that this is just kind of like a giant flow chart to me. That here's God, and He's perfect, and one of His perfections is that He's just. And so, He should pour out justice and His wrath on sin. That's fair. That's that's just. He's the one who should do that. And then there are people who've broken His law. And so, like in a court, they deserve justice, so they deserve His wrath. And then He sends His Son and he comes along, he doesn't deserve the wrath, but he gets credit for the law-breaking, and then the wrath falls on him, and I get credit for how he should be treated, he got credit for how I should have been treated, and that way God is loving and just at the same time. Okay, great, I see how the flowchart works, but then something goes wrong in your life. That someone hurts a child's feelings, or someone criticizes your work, Or a job is lost. And we come unhinged. That there's a diagnosis that that we can't believe. How could God do that? And suffering is the litmus test. Because if it is true that we who deserve justice have been given the perfect Son of God to absorb that for us, absorb it, Think, think about the verse... And Peter quotes this verse. It says that by... This is in the Old Testament. By His stripes, looking 800 years ahead to the Messiah, by His stripes we are healed. That's talking about Jesus' flogging, His Roman scourging, eight centuries later. Why is He just getting so violently torn? It says in the New Testament that He is a demonstration of God's righteousness. And we haven't even gotten to the cross yet, but that is a physical demonstration that God hates sin. Whose sin? My sin? Peter's sin? The believers, He hates it... Does that touch the heart? And does it touch the heart that he is there agonizing so that we never have to taste the wrath of God? Because if that grabs the heart, then if you lose your job, it's in proportion. That if he did that for me, this thing of cosmic proportion that changed the universe, I think he can raise up employment. I think He can raise up the friend I need if I'm lonely. I think the child who frustrates me so much, I think God is going to be there with us and go the distance with us. But if that is all theory, suffering will flush us out. This is what we need. Strong doctrines that grab the heart. He loves. He cleanses. He changes you. He sanctifies you from the inside out. We need all of that to grab the heart. Now, what about the recipients? Um, love to give a lot of nerdy info here. Let me. I'll just say this. Uh, basically, the recipients are Gentiles in modern-day Turkey. Gentiles in and around modern-day Turkey. A couple of things. We wish I had more time. But a couple of things to note on this. One is this, is that Okay, here is an example of saying a lot in a little bit of space. Peter had a tough time with the Gentile thing. The Apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was primarily the apostle to the Jews. And there's some very interesting (laughs) portions of the New Testament where you see that Peter is having a very difficult time with the fact that these former idol worshipers and pagans these gentiles that when they believe in the messiah they are just as much the people of God they are just as much inheriting all the promises in fact they are just as much children of Abraham <laughs> that was it would have been hard for us too i i guarantee it Okay, here's the thing about God sanctifying and changing and going the distance with people. You already see how Peter is changing because he calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. What does that mean? The elect was a term for Israel. But there are all these nations. There's Philistines, there's Hittites, and there's Canaanites... There's Moabites, there's Egyptians, there's all these other nations. But there's one nation, there's one people that God elected for no righteousness on their part, to love them. He foreknew them and He sets His love on them. They are His elect. And here's Peter from that ethnic background writing to people who are not from that ethnic background. Their family tree does not go back to Abraham. And He calls them the elect. And this is weird. He's writing to people who are not nomads. They have homes, they have addresses, they have backgrounds there. They might have backgrounds there for 500 years. And He calls them exiles. And He says you're part of the dispersion. What does that mean? The dispersion was a term you find in Jewish literature for what happened when the Babylonians in the 500s B.C. took over Israel, or took over Judah, and brought the Jews into their inhabited territory and ended up spreading Jewish people all over the world. And that's the reason why when you get to the New Testament, what are these synagogues doing in all these pagan cities? It's because of the dispersion. And what's really amazing about that is that is that when these first evangelists and these first apostles, when they go into a city that they've never been, where did they start preaching? Did they go to a street corner and set up their little, you know, whiteboard and go, okay, uh, let me talk about somebody you've never heard of before. They start at the synagogue where they can quote people's scriptures to them and tell them about the man who's fulfilled them. How did God get synagogues in all those places. Through a difficult, difficult providence, He dispersed His people. And this is incredible. Peter says to Gentiles, you're the dispersion. And I want you to think about the ramifications of that, not only for them, but for us as a church. I told Dana this morning that the thing after the Foundations class yesterday, the thing that left me pulling out of the parking lot, just sort of shaking my head, and not sad shaking, but sort of blown away shaking, was that when I moved here five and a half years ago, I just kind of hoped that someone would like me back, you know? I just kind of hoped that, I mean, I knew, there was this core group of people who were committed. They were already doing this thing. But I thought, I don't know if anyone wants to come to this. And there are already other churches. I, I mean, I don't know. And all the insecurities and sin and wiggity-whack things that, that go with that. But wiggity-whack things that go with that. Just <laughs> For our visitors, we hope you find a church home after hearing that. Um... But... I think that what I thought would be just sort of, you know, oh, wow, what if we achieve that? What if people who worked downtown or lived downtown, what if they took an interest in what we were doing? And it really hit me yesterday that that's not not how high the bar is. Or that's not the gold standard. But the story behind the story is what God is actually doing. It it was people in the class... they have not joined yet, so I don't want to sign, sign them away. But it was people saying, I already work downtown. Or I already live downtown. One couple said, we both work downtown. We live close to downtown. We want to, li- we want to move closer into downtown. And it hit me. It's not so much like, hey, let's parachute in and see if anybody wants to come to this downtown church. It hit me that what God was, is doing has been doing and is doing, is dispersing His people into the downtown. Workplaces, neighborhoods, whatever. And I'm not trying to set them up as, oh, and they are the elite of our church. We have have people spread out all over the city. But it just hit me that that cannot find its origin in anything that we've done. Nothing good in this church does. But it's God dispersing people. If if you are here this morning and you know Christ Jesus, this is really, I mean, it could be a paradigm shift in how you think about yourself. If you are in Christ, you are part of God's dispersion. Why are you on that street? Why are you in that office? And and we could even make this as real as, why did you lose your job and when you would have been with this group of people, now you've been thrust into this change and you're with these people. That God spreads us out to be the body. To be it in Greenville, to be it with neighbors, to be it with the apartment next to you. That we are the dispersion just as much as they were in Asia Minor. Let me say this too. <clears throat> he, he, he kind of says his little intro, and then he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's not the first word that should give us problems, it's the second. Grace should make a lot of sense. Okay, you can deny Jesus, and now you get to write parts of the Bible. Uh, yeah, that's undeserved favor. Okay, yeah, grace. You should be an expert in that. Peace. To sufferers? What would you think? What would you think of me if I flew down to Haiti and I walked into one of these tent cities maybe where some cholera epidemic is either raging or or has already raged through? What if I walked into this tent city and said in Creole, May peace be multiplied to you. Would you not think... That is so unbelievably inappropriate. That is is so utterly disconnected from the suffering that is taking place right in front of you. How in the world can you walk in and announce peace to people who are suffering so much? Okay, first off, Peter had street cred to talk about suffering. But what does he know? What, is he, what does He know that we need? He knows this, is that if your peace, if your sense of what the Israelites knew as shalom, if that comes from your circumstances being great, your peace will be a roller coaster. It will come and it will go, and the smallest little thing will undo it. However... If you have the peace of Christ. If you know that God loved you before you even knew that you were you. That he loved you and he sent his son for you. As Jason said, he doesn't he doesn't just love you, he likes you. His spirit lives in you to do this Artful creation over a lifetime to conform you in your own personality to the image of Christ, and He's never, ever going to forsake you or leave you ever. If you have that, then you can be diagnosed with cancer, or you can lose a close friend, or you can have an incredible setback, or you can experience depression and not despair. You can even have peace if they're walking you off to martyr you, which Jesus had assured Peter would happen, and it did. That's real. And let me end with this. I had a great question in the class yesterday. I hope the Foundations class people that are here feel real famous. You're kind of like the main sermon illustration uh, this week. Again, you don't have to join if you don't want to. But someone asked a great question yesterday. Uh, The question was asked, you know at the end of the service when the benediction is pronounced, this person said, I hold my hands out, and I noticed that a lot of people in the church hold their hands out. I don't know why I'm doing that. That was was a great question. Because we need to know why we're doing what we're doing. And I tried to make the point that, you know, we're not just souls. We're body-soul packages. And in the same way that it can actually affect your prayers to physically kneel, because we are both body and soul, it can just help you pray to take up the posture of praying, physically. And when the benediction is pronounced, as I try to say, I'm not the blesser, I'm just proclaiming it. But the blesser is God. God is blessing his people, and there is something appropriate. You don't have to. You don't have to, but there's something appropriate about people holding their hands in the gesture of, of reception, of, of receiving what's being given to them. And then uh, the person asking the question said, "Okay, good. I'll keep doing that." But I, I just I want to end by saying this that often the benediction ends with what? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you what? Shalom. Peace. And He knows full well that some of you are walking back. He knows full well what you're walking into. It may be sitting beside you. It could be in your heart right now. He's not saying pretend like that's not real. He's saying if these things are real, no. In the midst of it, as an exile, as a dispersed believer, as my child, you have my peace. You have grace and you have peace, and it's not a fiction. You have it. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we ask together that these things won't just be talking points, theology bullet points, something for debating or something for a cool discussion. We do want to learn. We do want to grasp, but we pray for the thing that we can't work in ourselves, and that is for you to cause these things to grasp us for these things to grasp us. Holy Spirit, we pray for the man or woman here this morning who does not believe, maybe even feels You drawing near and resists. Would You cause Your great love, Your great mercy in Jesus Christ to grasp her heart, His heart. And draw them to Yourself. Lord, to those who have known these things, maybe for decades, would You melt us so that when we suffer, we suffer rightly and know that we have grace and peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.